It looks like Benjamin Netanyahu secured his fifth term as Israel's prime minister. His main contender, Benny Gantz, conceded, and Netanyahu is likely to form a ruling coalition in the coming weeks. With that, having control of the majority of the Israeli Knesset, but many observers say the results make little difference for Palestinians. What are your thoughts on that, Boudoud? For Palestinians, it does really make a little difference because in terms of their militarism, their preparedness to attack Palestinians in Gaza, the two are on the same line. In fact, Gantz used his record as a military commander as something to his credit when he launched his elections campaign. But we should also look at it in different ways, not just how it affects Palestinians, but also how it reflects on the developments and the dynamics of the Israeli society. I think because it's really important for us to understand the supposed contradictions within the Israeli society, also to understand how we as Palestinians should move forward. Because as you said, while it does really make little difference, it also gives us an indication to the strength of Netanyahu and to his popularity, that even despite the fact that three military commanders Commanders organized together with another media personality, who is Yair Lapid, to form this blue and white coalition movement that is born out of the Israeli military establishment, of the Israeli army, in order to challenge Netanyahu, in order to end his rule. Because that was the main uniting line of these four, that we want to end Netanyahu. They didn't really rely on any ideology per se. Their main ideology, anyone but Netanyahu, and they promoted themselves as the only ones capable of defeating Netanyahu and they played the army card if we look at their discourse as I said earlier it was a very militaristic ultra masculine nationalistic discourse that used even the tone and the discourse and the terminology that they used was very inspired by militarism and by the army to promote themselves as the strong men who can constitute a strong alternative to Netanyahu. So this is precisely what we had at stake. From the one hand, you have Netanyahu and his uh, right-wing Jewish nationalist supporters and also ultra-Orthodox supporters and his Likud party. And from the, on the other hand, you had this military establishment supported coalition that wanted to supposedly offer an alternative. But it also was never and is not competition or a contest between right and center as it was promoted in the Israeli media. Because all the time we've heard how it's about the center right versus the center left. Because let's face it, Benny Gantz and Ashkenazi and Lapid are not center-left. They are not center at all. Their policies, in fact, when it comes to Gaza, when it comes to repression of Palestinians, even when it comes to the rights of Palestinians in the West Bank, are very right-wing. Even when they talk about not annexing the West Bank, they don't talk about it out of uh, because they want to grant Palestinians their rights, but because they only see Palestinians as a problem that they need to somehow solve. So this is the bottom line, is we had this contest between two different types of right wing. And as we saw, even despite the military putting its weight behind uh, this new coalition, it failed to secure the necessary alliance to beat Netanyahu. And it will be a minority. It will be an opposition. And Netanyahu will definitely be able to form the government, at least for 
the next year mm-hmm. until his indictment comes goes over. And speaking of that, the Israeli Justice Ministry is still considering an indictment of Netanyahu. What does that say about the Israeli society right now when for the fifth time they vote for Netanyahu despite the corruption charges that he's facing? Yeah, look, it's probably ironic, but um, his popularity even increased after the talk about indictment. He used it in his favor. He used it to present himself as somehow anti-establishment. He used it to say, look, that the judiciary is launching a witch hunt against me, against my family. He was very dramatic in portraying how this has affected his beloved wife and children. So he kind of used his uh, populist uh, repertoire in order to gain support, in order to use an apparently negative event in order to actually increase his popularity. And people don't really care about the indictment of Netanyahu, nor do they care about corruption. They saw that Netanyahu, what he has done over the last decade is that he has made their country more successful, that he made it more stable in their eyes. And plus the last gift that he received from Trump in the form of the recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights was massive. He used it in his elections campaign. He was using the pictures and the declarations of Trump during pretty much most of his advertisement and ads on YouTube and everywhere when Trump recognized the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. Also, he used the recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan to see that, look, I've managed to secure for you what no other president or prime minister has done before. So uh, what I've done, no one has done before me. And this made him extremely popular. And also the other reason is that we're talking about an extremely right-wing society, the Israeli society. Mm -hmm. If you want to win more votes, it's enough to be racist. It's enough to talk about how Arabs go to vote in droves. It's enough to talk about how you are going to even escalate annexation and turn it from de facto annexation into de jure annexation. So the more you promote yourself as anti-Palestinian, as masculine, as this kind of strong man, as the one who manages to increase Israel's strength, the more you're going to gain vote. And Netanyahu, let's face it, is probably world champion in and being able to be more racist than anyone else. You touched on the issue of the Golan and the annexation of West Bank settlements. So let me ask you this. We're looking now at a settler expansionist government in Israel, and it's blessed and encouraged by the right-wing government in the U.S. Like you said, President Trump said he would recognize uh, Israel's sovereignty over the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. So looking at all of this, what future do you foresee for the region? And do you think this is the official death certificate for the two-state solution? Look, I think every time we talk about how it's finally the final nail in the coffin, I don't think there is a single object that has more nails in its coffin than the (laughs) two-state solution. So I really don't know when people will will face the painful destination that not only is the two-state solution did now, it has died long time ago. It's just that no one is interested in carrying out the funeral for some reason. The thing is, if Netanyahu does, in fact, carry out a legal annexation, a de jure annexation of the West Bank settlement, it will put, first of all, the EU in a very problematic position because it can no longer 
keep on with its make-believe game. It can no longer keep the same talk that it has been following for the last few decades about two-state solution and about the possibility of peace. So it will kind of finally make a very clear reality even look more barefaced even. So it will kind of put Israel supporters who also pretend to be supporters of two-state solution in a very challenging position on what kind of discourse they can use because they can no longer talk about the two-state solution that they have been talking about. So they have to somehow change their discourse. So are they ready to do that? I'm not sure if they are prepared because so long we've had a lot of condemnation from the EU to against Netanyahu and against his government and against plans that he was in Tending to carry out, for example, the plan to evict Khan al-Ahmar. But we've never heard them offer anything tangible or anything actual on how to hold Israel accountable. So if Netanyahu comes and declares an actual annexation, not just because we've been having permanent annexation in the West Bank, and it's been creeping annexation, and in some way it serves Netanyahu better, it serves the occupation better to carry out this slow annexation without making it legal or without having to enshrine it. But annexation on the ground is happening Mm -hmm. and has been happening and it's not just a Netanyahu problem by the way the annexation policies were first carried out by suppose leftist government led by labor and it was labor actually who first started with the whole construction of settlement movement in the West Bank and in the Galilee by the way but also in the West Bank so Netanyahu was just following on their legacy in this sense but doing it much more aggressively or wanting to do it more aggressively even but to transform this creeping annexation into official annexation will present all of those, even Netanyahu also with difficult questions. What do you do with the Palestinians whose territories you're going to be annexing? What do you do with the Palestinians who live in Area C? So honestly, I just don't see Netanyahu annexing Area C of the West Bank right now. I do think was an attempt to gain more votes. I do think that it's not of his interest to do that. And that's one major difference, perhaps, between Netanyahu and between those who think out of a military mindset, that he think more about uh, populist tones or populist discourse, while uh, the military men think more about strategic planning. So they don't think it's beneficiary for Israel for the short term to actually clear annexation, legal annexation of the West Bank, when they can continue with their creeping annexation without uh, provoking Mm -hmm. international fuss and media attention as they've done in the occupied Golan Heights. But again, as I said, we can't really know because uh, uh, both Netanyahu and Trump have been full of surprises. Uh, Many of us didn't expect the Jerusalem move to happen somehow. We thought somehow it will be delayed. It wasn't. And the same applies to the Golan Heights. Many counted on the fact that no way Trump will just ignore international law, but he then ignored international law and agreed to turn the United States into sort of pariah state, blessing violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law. So it's not far-fetched that they'll do this in the uh, West Bank. But it will also... What it will do, other than obviously kind of carve the last nail or the probably the last nail in the coffin of the two-state solution, it will also pretty much end uh, any legitimacy, if they had any at all, 
of the uh, Palestinian Authority. It will be also a certificate to the Palestinian Authority if this annexation, official annexation, takes place. So let's talk about uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and their role in this election. They are eligible to vote, but many chose not to vote this year. In fact, early exit polls showed a low turnout of less than 50% this election. But some sources suggested that the turnout increased towards the end of the voting day Tuesday. Why is that? Yeah, so in terms of the turnout, yes, it was until 8 p.m. It was extremely low. It was less than 50%. But in the last two hours, the supporters of the parties and local organizers, including uh, imams in mosques and popular figures, kind of uh, sent a last uh, gasp. Uh, prayer or plea for people to go and vote, even using emotional language in order to kind of uh, encourage people to vote. Some would say even blackmail people into voting. And it somehow barely, just barely worked. So the two main lists that participated in the elections, on the one hand, the Hadash and the change list led by uh, Ahmad Tibi on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Balad and the Islamic list, they both managed to sneak in, one with six seats in the parliament, the other with four. But the turnout says a lot about what Palestinians in Israel don't want to go to participate in elections. So we can divide it into, I think, three parts. First of all, you have those who ideologically boycott the elections and who have always done that. So they oppose the elections out of principled reasons, because we believe that participating in the elections in itself is going to grant a leaf of legitimacy to the uh, Israeli system. And we don't want to participate in the this facade of democracy because we don't believe it in it anyway and we believe that there are other ways and other platforms in which we can mobilize in order to oppose Israeli policies and in order to resist Israeli colonialism and I have to admit that this uh, pool or this section of those who didn't vote is a minority so this section of people who boycott out of ideological reasons mm-hmm. are a minority and then you have the second segment of people who boycotted the elections or who didn't participate in the elections because they were angry about the joint list. They were angry about the the dissolution of the joint list. They were angry that Palestinian parties didn't unite in one coalition and were rather divided. They were angry with the way the Palestinian parties handled themselves during the elections with all the struggle over who will get uh, more seats and how the the whole rotation will go on. Can you just say something about this whole rotation. I know the reasons why the Palestinian parties didn't have a joint list this time around is messy. There's a lot of messy politics. Yeah, it is. I'm not going to explain it all Mm -hmm. because it's too long. But the the agreement was is for the for the first two years, we're going to have certain members. And for the second term or the second half of these four years, we will exchange. So we will have additional members in order to at least 18 or 19 people can sneak in and can get their opportunity. So parties didn't really abide by this deal and uh, didn't respect it. And there were uh, ugly confrontations between the parties, which led Palestinians to think that what these guys are, are more concerned with are just the seats rather than actually serving us. 
So they kind of were playing musical chairs rather than being concerned about supporting us as a people. And this is why they were so angry. And then the reason why the joint list couldn't rebuild itself and couldn't participate again as a joint list is that one of the members of the joint list, Ahmad Tibi, who is, uh, again, a very populist figure, said that I can get many more votes if I go alone. And then he kind of destroyed the whole thing. But then again, somehow they managed to participate, represent two different lists. But this whole, as I said, this whole saga really jeopardized their legitimacy in the eyes of the people. And, and this is so this is the anger is the second reason. The third reason, many people call it apathy. They, they say that people don't care anymore. I I think that it's superficial to call it just apathy. I think it's also disillusionment, disillusionment with the political system as a whole, with the Israeli political system, with the electoral system as a whole, disillusionment with the parties. And yes, apathy in a sense, because people are tired, are bored. They think that their voices have not been heard. And I do think that if you as a political representative, despite putting so much efforts or trying to put so much efforts in campaigning, in organizing, in mobilizing, if you can't convince people to get over or to get rid of their apathy in order to vote for you, you're doing something wrong. If you can't do something to change this apathy that you describe it as an apathy, to put an end to the disillusionment, to offer people a better alternative, then they're not going to simply vote for you. And this is what we've seen. People, in a sense, it was some... I won't call it a red card, but perhaps a yellow card for the joint for the Palestinian parties in the Knesset, or some even would call it a red card. This was a punishment. This low turnout, which threatened to be less than 50 percent until the last two hours, was a punishment by Palestinians, and and it was a a rational decision. By the way, many would portray it as an emotional decision. In my opinion, it was a rational, calculated decision that people say we want to punish you because you failed us. And you have you have done very little for us as a people and you have only spoken and you have only served us with lip service. And for this, we are going to punish you for betraying us, for betraying our faith in you. And I think it was a severe punishment. Now, whether the Palestinian parties in the Knesset will learn any lessons from it. Unfortunately, I doubt it. Two days after the elections, they're still using the same old language, the same old throwing blame at one another instead of actually uh, sitting and asking themselves the difficult question, doing self-critique, asking why this happened. They still think that people are a flock of sheep that can only be obedient. They don't really think that people can form their rational opinions themselves. So they, they claim that People not going to vote is what made the right win this election. When it was their failure to actually convince people to vote for them, to convince people that they actually matter, it was what led to the continued resurgence and continuous rise, let's say, of the Israeli right. But there are some people who also went out and voted. What are some of the reasons for people who are in favor of voting? What are some of the political justifications, let's say, people give for why they think participating in the Israeli electoral politics is effective in their opinion? I think the main reason why people went to vote is the fear of the right wing. And even when the parties try to convince people to go and vote, this is the argument that they use. If you don't vote for us, 
the right wing is going to control everything. So this is, I think, fear of the right. And I think it's it's legitimate, this fear, right? Uh, I do not think that uh, voting in elections is going to change this map uh, dramatically. But I do think that this fear is legitimate. But yeah, this was the main reason why people went to vote, especially for the Palestinian parties. Other reasons were, obviously, th- there are other than the political reason, we can also not ignore that. Many people think about more th- the everyday trouble mm-hmm. that they uh, have, mm-hmm. about their social economic rights, about services, about infrastructure, about planning and construction issues. So about what we can say everyday plight or everyday problems, which are definitely interconnected to the political question, mm. because you can't separate uh, one from the other. This some, is one some of the numbers, main reasons uh, also why... that I saw suggest that about 30% of the Arab-Palestinian voters chose Zionist parties. Maybe explain why people voted that way. Yeah, so you have uh, about 39,000 who voted for Meretz, which is the left-wing Zionist, uh, liberal Zionist party, which is perhaps the most kind of, at least socially and economically is the most social and economically progressive uh, Israeli party. In terms of politics, it's kind of has this, uh, you know, liberal Zionist approach, which is still, for many, it's much more tolerable than what the labor offers. And actually, it was the votes of the Palestinians who helped Meretz get over the electoral threshold. In addition to Meretz, you have also a significant number of Palestinians who voted for Shas, which is the ultra-Orthodox mm-hmm. Jewish party, which might sound extremely ironic. Oh, and by the way, we we should also point out that Mm -hmm. it was ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties who were the biggest winners of this whole election because Mm -hmm. they now have 16 seats. They will be part of the government. They can take whatever ministries they want and they want the interior ministry. They want the Ministry of Finance. They want uh, perhaps the Ministry of Education as well. So they want the ministries that they care about. And always kind of we try to wrap our heads about how on earth Will Palestinians in the villages vote for Shas? And the easy answer is that Shas's program is very heavily dependent on social and economic issues because they represent the Sephardim, the Jews from Arab origin, who also happens to be on the lower scale of the Israeli social spectrum. They are also among the poorest mm-hmm. communities within the Israeli society, which which leads some perhaps to identify, some Palestinians to identify, because we say, at least in terms of our class situation, we belong to the same class. So if we vote for Shas, we can uh, support our social and economic issues, which and, and we can't deny that some people, this is their main concern. And also there were obviously who voted for uh, uh, Zionist parties, for blue and white, for labor. There are different reasons why. I think some would claim that we want a party representing us in government because we will be stronger this way. And also we have the Palestinian Druze community, who many of whom also support clearly Zionist parties, including right-wing and uh, Jewish and uh, Zionist nationalist parties. So it, it is, when we talk about Palestinians in Israel, we can't talk about one bloc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about a, div- a very diverse society. So we have those, as I said, we have you have the, those who voted out of ideological reasons. You have those who don't vote because they're disillusioned with the whole system. You have those 
those whose main concern is social survival, so and economic survival. So they will vote to whomever they think that can serve their uh, objectives or serve their uh, clearer or direct interests. And you have those who don't have any ideology and they kind of change their voting patterns in accordance to what's new or what happens. So we are talking about a diverse society, Mm -hmm. but one also can't deny that this problem, this confusion of identity, one of the main groups responsible for it is the Palestinian political leadership in Israel. Because when you as a political leadership fail to provide alternatives, when you fail to convince people that you've done anything for them, when you are more concerned about seats than you are concerned about helping the people, when you for years all that you have to offer is scaring people from the right instead of actually fulfilling something, and not just in the Knesset, because many people say, why don't we see these people only when it comes to elections time. What happens during those four or three or two years? Why do they only care about us when it's time to get our votes? So if you don't have effective, significant and serious work on the ground, working with people on the ground and also connecting political, social and economic and national issues, this is the inevitable result of all that's happening. Mm -hmm. And, And unfortunately, people think that these political parties think that it's only about the Knesset and their obsession with the made them forget that there are other terrains to work on, that there are other local issues to work on. And, and when we talk about Palestinian Palestinians in Israel, we have to mention that this is a society that has been absolutely wrecked by, by violence, by internal violence, by gender violence against women, by almost daily shooting in Palestinian villages due to poverty, due to so many other problems, due to desperation. And due to simply violence has wreaked havoc in, in, in our society. So we're talking about an incredibly desperate, divided and fragmented society. And instead of offering us hope or a venue, our political leadership is busy quarreling over seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Budur, uh, this basically was kind of uh, my last question to you, uh, which is the prospects of Palestinian political work inside Israel. You're clearly very skeptical of the work Palestinian legislators have been able to do inside uh, the Knesset. In this past Knesset, they had 13 seats. Now we're talking about around uh, 10 seats. About 10. They're, they've never been uh, part of a governing coalition. So what prospects can we see, in your opinion? You clearly are saying there is massive, massive needs for political work in the Palestinian community inside Israel. There needs to be a transition, a shift on how we work. There is a political sciences professor, uh, Asad Ghanim, who called on Palestinian legislators to withdraw from the Knesset and to start from scratch working on the ground with people. And I tend to agree with this point. I think that's the... I know it won't happen, by the way. They are not going to do it. But for me, that would have been... They would have accepted that indictment that people handed them and they would it would have shown that they are at least much much humbler than they've shown themselves to be. But this is not going to happen. Now, what other prospects, what other things that we can do and outside of the Knesset? Because I'm really, if I was skeptical, skeptical before about our prospects of doing anything in the Knesset, even, look, even just uh, very small reforms, you know, you can do small things here and there, change some policies or in terms of budgets and budget allocation, in terms of changing certain master plans. This you can probably do, but that's the maximum that you can do. 
what we have to really think about is Palestinian citizens in Israel has something called the follow-up committee. The local follow-up committee is the umbrella coalition under which parties, Palestinian municipalities are gathered. And this body needs to be restructured. It needs to be demolished and restructured and and built from scratch and not built by the traditional leaders that we've, we've probably bored of hearing time and time again for the last 20, 30 years. And and this body really needs to start working within the communities, forming neighborhood communities, working in every single city and in every single, single village, working in issues of violence and issues of education and also issues of gender equality and issues of identity and issues of national awareness. There are so many things to work on, but this traditional leadership that we have right now is absolutely incapable of leading this change Mm -hmm. because they think according to the traditional modes of thinking rather than thinking of how you can build from below and how you can build by sharing and by working with people, not just working for people or not just treating people as objects that need your help. So this is absolutely essential to rebuild follow-up committee, to rebuild it democratically so that the members of this committee are not simply chosen because of their history or because of their experience or because they're men. And, uh, and, and to have it work and have it work in every, as I said, in every single village and in every single city. And I think, and, and we all know that this is going to be a very long-term project. So this is not going to happen within two, three years. But if the rise of the right, and, and again, or let's say of the right of this type of right, because uh, I, I do believe that in terms of for us Palestinians, the Israeli government have always been right-wing. But if the rise of this kind of type of populist, uh, ethno-nationalist, religious right doesn't teach us anything, I really think it's going to be tragic for us. We really need to kind of have our reckoning as a people. And simultaneously, it's very important not to forget that we are part of a larger people. We're part, we're part and parcel of the Palestinian people, of the refugees, of Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza, of Palestinians in Jerusalem and in the diaspora. It's very important because many pro-Israel supporters always use this point to say that the Palestinian leadership cares only about outside while ignoring or overlooking the plight of Palestinians inside. I think it's very important to break this inside and outside binary because this binary, in my opinion, should not exist. It's very important to connect the issues that we face on a daily basis to our general struggle for national liberation because it's. I, I think the two cannot be separated and it's very important to actually also build bridges and connections with Palestinian activists and community organizers in our divided homeland and across the diaspora in order to also rebuild our identity uh, as a people mm-hmm. and also can overcome the political binaries and overcome the, these boundaries that have been forced upon us. Wadur Hassan, uh, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Mira.